my head says one thing, but my heart wants another. As human beings, we can be a walking, talking contradiction at times, can't we? For instance, I know I should get up earlier to start my day, but I'd rather hit the snooze button again and sleep in just for a little longer. I know I should study for the test right now, but I really want to watch my favorite TV show or the Duke and UNC game. I know I should lose a few pounds. When I'm at Chili's, those brisket quesadillas are so good. little pastor's confession for you. Sleep, time management, studying for tests, food cravings, they are all things that we might experience this kind of contradiction of sorts. We know in our minds what we ought to do, but in our hearts, in our cravings, in our self-indulgent desires... Sometimes it seems what our heart is wanting, which we know is not good for us, is winning the competition. And as Christians, this perpetual wrestling match or inner war inside of us, it doesn't go away when you follow Jesus. The Lord certainly may give you and I a a honeymoon period as Christians for a little while, As babies in the faith, it's not uncommon for the Lord to protect a young Christian for a season where they think life is all sunshine and rainbows. But any seasoned Christian knows that a honeymoon season will end. And before we know it, we will have countless storms, thorns, and enemies along the way. That's why we need the local church. We need believers of all maturities Any mature man or woman of God who has put some serious mileage on the tires of their Christian race, they know that perseverance and discipline is required. Any faithful man or woman of God that's worth imitating in our own life, they all carry around them relationship scars and spiritual war wounds for fighting the good fight, the Christian faith. You see, every Christian man or woman, boy or girl, that doesn't matter. Every Christian, when you sign up to follow Jesus, we're all going to experience a back-and-forth tug-of-war match, a tug-of-war match for our souls. The Apostle Peter said it this way, to a scattered, persecuted bunch of believers, 1 Peter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. What Peter is talking about is really just the daily battle of what it means to follow Jesus. What you know to be true about Jesus, what you know to be true in God's word, sometimes your flesh and your heart says a very different thing. And friends, it's just to be freshly reminded once again, following Jesus is not like a church fundraiser cakewalk. Following Jesus is not a lifelong cruise vacation. No, if we're going to understand the Christian life according to the New Testament, what we're going to find is a very different reality. 
You see, following the Lord Jesus is not a life of perpetual ease and self-indulgence, but of a daily dying to self and a humble trust in Christ. A daily dying to self and a humble trust in Christ. Friends, this contradiction between what we know to be true in our heads and often what we can feel in our hearts, it's a ferocious war. It's a ferocious war because we know and we hear and we read and we rejoice in the things we know to be true in God's word. And just three hours from now, our hearts might be telling a very different story. I mean, can you relate to any of these examples this morning? I know what the Bible says. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. I've read Romans 12 that says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But I want justice now. I want this person or these group of people to feel my wrath now. Because God doesn't seem to be showing his wrath anytime soon. I know gathering with the church each Lord's Day is good for my spiritual growth. But I just don't feel like going to church this Sunday. It's been a hard and long week. I'm sure God will understand. I know God says flee sexual immorality and, and to marry only in the Lord, but, but I want to feel loved. I don't want to be alone the rest of my life. I know what the Bible says about church membership, church discipline, elders and deacons, but I won't be popular if I implement these things. I might even have well-known fourth-generation church members who give a lot of money, leave the church. If I apply these truths to my church, it's just too costly. My head says one thing, but my heart wants another. We can even do the same thing with how we handle some of life's biggest challenges, can't we? Even how we search for life's most important questions. In March of 2016, staff writer Jenna Wartham for the New York Times Magazine wrote an interesting article entitled, We're More Honest with Our Phones Than with Our Doctors. Writing from the confluence of medicine and technology, Jenna Wartham explains how smartphones have been created throughout the years for people to submit and really reveal some pretty personal things about themselves. Anywhere from dating apps to women's health care concerns, uh, people throughout the world have put things on the internet <laughs> to try to find answers that they wouldn't even share with a doctor they could see face to face. In her observations of how people are willing to trust what they read on the internet more than people they actually know, she brings to light something about human nature in the 21st century that I think is a good gut check for all of us this morning. She writes, in recent years, mobile technology has granted me and countless others the ability to collect an unprecedented amount of information about our habits and well-being. Our phones don't just keep us in touch with the world, they're also diaries, confessional booths, repositories for our deepest secrets. Most of us are willing to be much more honest with our phones than with professionals or even with our spouses and partners. 
We look up weird symptoms and humiliating questions on Google with the same ease that we search for the name of a vaguely familiar character actor. For many of us, our smartphones have become extensions of our brains. We outsource essential cognitive functions like memory to them, which means they soak up much more information than we realize. In this article, she just basically goes on to say how raw and transparent people can be with searching for things on the internet that they would never share with someone sitting with them in this church this morning. Friends, if if that's true, at least in your observation or even your experience, what has your usage of the internet just this past week said about how you are really doing? We looked at whatever apps you use or technology, What is it saying about what's really going on in the heart? Jenna Wardham observed this strange discrepancy between people's honesty about their health with their phones compared to the honesty they share or don't share with their doctors face-to-face. I think there's something even here for us as Christians this morning. Are you more honest with your phone than with the Christians God has put in your life? Are you more honest with your phone than the pastors God has put in your life to shepherd you? Who or what do you turn to in order to find help to life's biggest challenges? Who do you turn to to find answers to life's most important questions. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 specifically, we'll be looking at Mark 8, verse 27, to Mark 9, verse 1. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 492. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. This morning in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we come across a major intersection in the lives of Jesus' disciples. We could even consider this section in Mark's gospel as a major hinge passage that will point us, depending on how you and I respond to it, in one of two directions. We will either hear what Jesus says and walk away from him. We're done. Or we will hear what Jesus says and continue following him. By the time we arrive at this section, the 12 disciples have been traveling with Jesus on his itinerant ministry for some time now. And in their journey so far, they have experienced some ordinary and some extraordinary events together. Now, some of those more extraordinary ones were Jesus feeding the 5,000, Jesus calming a storm with a word, raising a little dead girl back to life, commanding untold amounts of demons to keep their mouth closed. Those are pretty miraculous things, right? They saw some things that would really touch you for the rest of your life. But they also saw Jesus do some fairly ordinary things. Jesus continued to teach them, like this morning. God has set me apart for however long he wants me to be a pastor in this life, or however long he wants me to live, to 
teach his flock his word. This is what Jesus did. And this is the essence of what real discipleship is all about. Teaching, mentoring, shepherding, and leading others to follow Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus did when he met these two pair of brothers at the beginning of Mark's gospel, remember? Mark 1 verse 17, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you become fishers of men. We left off last time in Mark 8 a few weeks ago where Jesus healed a blind man in stages, slowly but surely, causing him to see clearly for the first time. This morning, we're going to discover Jesus opened the spiritual eyes slowly but surely of his forgetful, fickle, as less like me to put it last time together, hard-headed and slow to believe disciples. Please follow with me. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And and others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is God's word. 
If you're taking notes, I have three main points for us that will serve as an outline. Point number one, Jesus confronts us with life's most important question. Jesus confronts us with life's most important question. That's verses 27 to 30. Point number two, Jesus teaches us what his father called him to accomplish. Jesus teaches us what his father called him to accomplish. That's verses 31 to 33. And point number three, Jesus calls us to follow him through a life of radical abandonment and humble trust. Jesus calls us to follow him through a life of radical abandonment and humble trust. Let's look at that first point. Jesus confronts us with life's most important question. Uh, Here in verse 27, if you want to look down with me, Mark sets the stage for us on where Jesus has decided to lead his disciples next. Uh, Previously together, we noticed that they were in Bethsaida. That's what Mark 8 verse 22 says, which was on the north or the northeast end of the Sea of Galilee. And here in verse 27, we're told that Jesus looks at his disciples. Before they're ever going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to go north. Jesus is going to say, walk with me 25 miles north to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you remember the last several sermons from really Mark 7 and earlier parts of Mark 8 and even all the way back to Mark 5, this is Gentile territory. They're not in Galilee right now. They're they're going back to Gentile land, the same type of people that would have lived in Tyre and Sidon and the Decapolis. That means Jesus has not hit the evacuation button yet on leaving the pagan-infested and idolatrous people of the Gentiles. For quite some time, as we remember from Mark 7, Jesus has been ministering amongst the dogs, as we learned about the Syrophoenician woman and all those who were estranged and separated from the covenant community of Israel. But here again, amongst all these healings Jesus is doing amongst the Gentiles, he's teaching his disciples something. He's showing them that one day, you, young men, are going to take the good news about me to the nations. But this time... Jesus doesn't spend any of his energy healing the crowds. He's back in Gentile territory, but he came there for a different agenda this time. He takes his 12 young men that's been following him for months and months on end, and as a good discipler would do, he challenges them with a question that they had never been confronted with from the mouth of Jesus like this before. They had been challenged by Jesus' example. They have been perplexed as they watched what he did, but they had never been challenged with the question they are going to be confronted with at this point in Mark's gospel. In fact, Jesus, like almost a good boxer, takes a one-two punch with two questions back to back that these young men could not escape. Look with me again at verses 27 and 28. 
And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. You'll notice the first question, the first punch, if you will, that he gives the disciples. And he asks, Who do the people say that I am? What's Facebook saying? What's the Google Doc survey saying? What's the voting booth saying? Bring back the reports. I want you to go find out what the people are saying about Jesus of Nazareth. Who are the people saying that I am? Well, what did they bring back? They bring back a series of guesses starting off with a few known people. One of them would have been an Old Testament prophet that they believe may have come back to earth, Elijah. Elijah, if you know the story, in First and Second Kings, he, he was a mighty prophet used of God, but he did not die a normal death like us. He, his, last, his obituary was a picture of him on chariots of fire. I mean, that's an obituary to read while you're eating a Hardy's biscuit. I mean, He's going up in the air, and poof, he's gone. And then at the end of Malachi, if you remember that series I preached, you know, feels like 20 years ago, back in 2020, that felt like 20 years ago. Um, Malachi talks about an Elijah figure coming back that will prepare the way for the Lord of hosts to bring judgment on apostate Israel and restoration to the people of God. In fact, Malachi 4.6, at the end of the book, says that when this figure comes, Elijah comes back, it would indicate that the great and awesome day of the Lord had arrived. So evidently, people were seeing what Jesus was doing, hearing what he was teaching, and going, well, this must be Elijah. And then amongst the press conference... Some were thinking, this is John the Baptist, resurrected from the dead. In fact, King Herod, remember Herod from Mark 6? He had John the Baptist beheaded, and he believed, well, this must be John the Baptist resurrected, because I know we took his life. I mean, they've got to be the same person. John the Baptist And Jesus had crowds flock to their ministry. John the Baptist and Jesus both preached repentance. Maybe this Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected after all. So who did the crowd say Jesus was? Were their hypotheses, their voting ballots, correct? Was he the long-awaited prophet Elijah? Was he John the Baptist resurrected? Was he Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, come back from the dead? Friends, the crowds were divided over him. We've been studying Mark's gospel together, and if you just take every summary of how divided people were over Jesus, you're going to come up with a long list of different ways people thought of Jesus. So, for example, some thought he had a demon. Some thought he was mentally insane. That was his biological family. Others believe he was a healing and miracle vending machine. 
Many thought he was a respected prophet, others an astounding teacher. Some thought he was a military commander-in-chief come to deliver the Jews from Rome's tyranny. But truth be told, Jesus did not care as much about what the crowds thought as much as he cared about what his disciples thought. You see, Jesus had taken these men to a unfamiliar place for them. Like a football coach might take their high school football team off to summer camp in the middle of Nowhereville so mama and daddy ain't around to help them. He takes them to a place that was remote for these young men. They had to depend on Jesus. They didn't know why we were going to this place and why was Jesus asking us these questions. But friends, it's there in Caesarea Philippi that the Lord of heaven, the King of glory, looked into their eyes and challenged all 12 of them with life's most important question. You see, by Jesus asking them this question, first with the crowds, Jesus was expanding their vision. He was helping them see all the multiple choices people might have about Jesus. What he was doing was also showing them they too would have to answer that same question. And in a quick, almost as if Jesus anticipated the responses of the people, he says, you young men. In the Greek, it's emphatic. In other words, he says, you, 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 12, who do you say that I am? The word here is in the plural, the you. He's not speaking just to Andrew or James. He's speaking to all 12. And then the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, the budding leader, the frequent spokesperson of the group responded, Peter answered him, you are the Christ. To my non-Christian friend, what do you believe is life's most important question? Kids, what do you believe is life's most important question? If you're anything like me before I became a Christian, or like many of the unbelievers I know, you might say something like this. Who will I marry? Will I ever get married? Will I have children? Will my children be healthy? Will my children grow up to be happy and successful? Will I make the swim team or football team this year? Will I get into the university of my first choice? Will I get the Christmas gift I've always wanted for five years? Will I be able to afford not working in my latter years and enjoy retirement? Will there ever be a cure for my cancer? How long will I live? On this earth? Friends, those are all fine questions to ask. Pretty normal questions to ask. But even amongst that list, none of them are life's most important question. You see, the most important question that you and I could ever ask has nothing to do ultimately with us. 
but about who the most important person is in human history. And that person is Jesus Christ. He is the hero of human history. Not you. Not me. And no one else you will ever meet. No one is like King Jesus. You see, if we really all boil this whole Christian thing down, what you and I have to come face to face with in our minds and in our hearts is this question. Who do you say Jesus is? You see, the answer to that question unlocks the door to understanding the meaning of your life. It unlocks the door in how to discern God's will in your life. It helps you understand how to face life's greatest challenges with heavenly wisdom and lasting hope. Google can't give you that. All Google can do is point you to truth. But I would not put all my money on Google to answer who is Jesus accurately. Friends, we don't need to go to Google. We don't need to download smartphone apps to figure out the answer to that question. We need to go to God's word and stare at this Jesus. Friends, just this past week, I was on the soccer fields. We were watching Avery and her friends play soccer and talk to, talking to a young lady and got to share the gospel with her. And she seemed pretty aimless about, you know, where she's at spiritually. Seemed like she had some bad church experiences, but I really just tried to boil it all down there, right there at Ben Garrett. Listen, this is what you've got to deal with in your life. The Bible's big, 66 books. But really, I can boil down this whole thing into one question. Who do you say Jesus is, Becky? Who do you say Jesus is? That's the question you need to answer tonight. Be praying for Becky. Pray that she comes to know the Lord through hearing the good news. Friends, if you go around this week, whether it's the soccer fields, the coffee shops, or at work, people are going to have all sorts of opinions about Jesus. Islam claims that Jesus was a prophet, but they reject the Trinity. Jehovah's Witnesses claim that Jesus was Michael the archangel. That became a man. Mormons believe Jesus and Satan are spirit brothers. But others may even say something like he was a good person. He was a wonderful humanitarian that cared about social injustice and caring for the poor. Jesus came to alleviate physical suffering in the world. Jesus is a good example of love and generosity. You're going to hear all that. And then there are those who kiss the church goodbye. And they'll say something like this, Oh, I believe in Jesus. He's kind of my lucky charm when time gets hard. Oh, I believe in Jesus. He's my hell's life insurance plan. Now, I said that prayer, pastor. I wrote my name in the back of the Bible, brother. But he has no impact on my life on day to day. You might even hear someone say like this, Jesus doesn't mean anything to me. He's just a historical figure written in an ancient book that we should basically ignore in our modern era. But for Peter, who saw him with his eyes, who heard him with his ears, touched him with his hands, he clearly, confidently, and accurately said, you are the Christ. The word Christ is not Jesus' last name. You're not going to find that on his driver's license. It's a title. 
means Messiah or anointed one. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the Messiah was prophesied to come and reign as king forever over all the earth. Psalm 110, Psalm 2, and a whole host of other texts. He would come and he would reign over all the earth and give his covenant people, sinners who would turn from their sins and trust in him, everlasting peace, everlasting joy, everlasting security with him. And friends, Peter declared that Jesus and Jesus alone was that long-awaited Messiah. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that is the main question Jesus poses to you. Who do you say Jesus is? Not do you understand how to reconcile God's sovereignty and the evil you see in the world. Not what your views are about Will Smith's actions at the Oscars this past week. Not do I measure up to my mom or dad's standards. Not will I get my dream house, my dream spouse, my dream job, perfect health, a wonderful life. No, the number one question you have to answer for yourself is who do you say Jesus is? Don't squirm. Jesus took his boys 25 miles north to make sure they didn't dodge that question. Boys, we're in Gentile land. You ain't got mama and daddy anymore. It's me. Am I really the Messiah or am I a quack? That is life's most important question. And friends, be warned. It's easy for me to challenge each one of us like that in a building like this. Be warned. You cannot live vicariously through someone else's faith in Jesus. You have to answer that question for yourself. As Donald Whitney aptly reminds us, salvation is not inherited. But many believe because one or more parents have a strong commitment to Christ that somehow the grace given to them covers the entire family. Each person must believe in Christ for himself or herself. No one goes to heaven on the spiritual coattails of another. Kids, raise your hand if you can hear me. I'm sure you can. I'm speaking kind of loud this morning. Raise your hand really loud. I mean, high, not loud. Okay. This is what I just spent about seven minutes ranting about. That means you have to decide for yourself who Jesus is. It's not fundamentally if your mom and dad believe this stuff. It's not even fundamentally about whether your brother or sister believes this stuff. You have to ask yourself, who is Jesus and will I give my whole life to him? Friends, I want to encourage you. Kids, I want to encourage you when you come to church on Sunday. I know it's long. But ask mom and dad or whoever brought you to church one or two questions about the sermon. Pay attention. You never know when the Lord is speaking to you and he's about to change your life. Today is the day of salvation, the word of God tells us. And parents, that means you and I must be diligent to teach our kids who Jesus really is. Because if we don't, the world will tell a very different version of Jesus for us. So if you're looking for some helpful resources beyond the Bible, 
the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, or Kevin DeYoung's recent book, The Biggest Story Bible Storybook. Or for slightly older kids, consider reading Who is Jesus by Greg Gilbert, and then read it with your kids. Back to Mark chapter 8. On this day in this Gentile territory, Christ was clearly revealed to these disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. The door was unlocked, and here Peter begins with his mind to see who Jesus really is. Friends, once you begin to answer that first question, then you'll begin to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Which leads to point number two. Jesus teaches us what his father called him to accomplish. Look at me starting at verse 31. And he began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Hidden expectations are exposed when truth is revealed. Hidden expectations are exposed when truth is revealed. You see, just when you think Peter and the disciples are high-fiving each other going, hey, we graduated with a PhD in following Jesus. Yeah, we did it. We went to camp. We went up to Caesarea Philippi. We nailed it. Jesus didn't say we were wrong. We got it. I mean, can't you even imagine it? Yeah, yeah, we got it. You know, didn't get it the first year or two, but we got it now. But what we see in this section, Jesus gave Peter an A-plus on his first exam. And five minutes later, Jesus gives him an F-minus on the next exam. You'll notice there in verse 31 that Mark informs us that Jesus began to teach them, explain to them, expound to them, tell them that as the Son of Man, he must suffer many things, and then be rejected and killed. Now, up to this point, you should be asking the question, why on earth did Peter rebuke Jesus? That's bold. I mean, there's one thing for a student to challenge a professor in front of 300 people at your first year of philosophy at the U of A. It's another thing to look at the king of heaven, the master teacher, and say, you're wrong. You're off. Why, what's going on here between this, this head and heart connection for Peter? Well, up until this point, Jesus is only alluded in the gospel of Mark of why he came. Remember Mark 1 verse 15, how Jesus proclaimed this message that a king had come in himself? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then in Mark chapter 2, we see two different scenes where Jesus heals a paralytic. And then he eats with tax collectors and sinners. Mark 2, starting in verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And then in Mark 2, verse 17, Jesus corrects the Pharisees when they look down on him for eating with tax collectors and sinners. Mark 2, 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So we know up to this point, the disciples do know something of why Jesus came. He's told them, I came as the king in human flesh, as the king of God's kingdom, and preach repentance and faith. I am also the great physician who's come to seek and save that which is lost, those who are sick in their sin. But for these disciples, they were just still scratching their heads. They were not totally aware how their rabbi, their friend, their mentor, their Messiah would actually accomplish this salvation thing. How the kingdom of God would actually come to fruition. Uh, Who in here likes putting together puzzles? No, you're on one this morning. I know you like them. Have you ever tried to put together a massive puzzle, but after a couple of hours, everything just starts to get kind of fuzzy in your mind? Maybe you spend most of your time separating all the pieces before you can put them together, and then you're just kind of at a standstill. You're just kind of like, yeah, I'm going to have to go to bed on this one. Well, these disciples, they had different sections of the puzzle about Jesus, but they were missing the center picture of the puzzle about why he came to earth. You see, Peter, in this next conversation, though he got the first question right, he bombed the next one. He heard Jesus begin to talk about his suffering, being rejected, being killed, all at the hands of the religious elite of his day. The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, uh, these were the 70 or so men made up of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Uh, They were the hot stuff, if you will, the most respected of the religious community that had religious power. But Friends, we shouldn't be too hard on Peter. Peter loved Jesus. Jesus did not rebuke him because he didn't love him. But Peter just didn't understand. His head and his heart were not connecting. He couldn't see how the one he loved, the one he gave up everything for, the one where he finally sees who he is, how suffering, especially to the most religious elite of his day, had anything to do with being the Messiah. He thought surely the Messiah would come and conquer immediately. Surely he would come and wipe out our enemies immediately. Surely he would come and fulfill that Davidic throne and rule over all the earth. But what Peter and the other disciples did not grasp was how the ruling and reigning Messiah would have to first come as the suffering servant. The Jews didn't fully grasp this. They didn't understand that in his first coming, the Messiah would fulfill what we read in Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Friends, this was talking about the Messiah, Messiah Jesus. In verse 32, as we already alluded, this jaw-dropping next move by Peter does leave us somewhat stunned. Peter rebukes Jesus, corrects Jesus. The fallible student was trying to correct heaven's master teacher. Friends, it wasn't because Peter was hostile to Jesus. He loved Jesus, but he was very ignorant about the full scope of why Jesus came. Friends, without knowing it, Peter was trying to forbid Jesus from ever thinking that suffering was not God's plan for him. Now we just entered the deep end of the pool of theology. But with perfect agape love and pure heavenly truth, Jesus turned and rebuked Peter and all those who were siding with Peter in this false assessment. Jesus looks at these men and says, these things must happen. You see, Jesus didn't need to know what the crowds thought about him. 
Jesus didn't need to know what the 12 disciples thought about him. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew why he came. And Jesus knew that immense suffering awaited him in order to accomplish his father's plan. Beloved, Jesus knows what we know today, that the wages of sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And yet, knowing this, Jesus was still willing to lay down his life as a substitute in our place to absorb the full force of God's just wrath against sin. Even if it meant his own disciples trying to stop him from going to Calvary, even rebuke him in front of all these people, even one day deny him and even one betray him, Jesus was going to remain obedient to his father to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Christ's sufferings were not for his own sin. Christ's sufferings were for the sins of our sins committed against God, the sins of his disciples and the sins of everyone who would ever turn from their sins and trust in him. Friends, Jesus was not going to suffer because he was wrong with God. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. The innocent one was crushed on behalf of the ungodly ones like us. As Jesus will repeat at the end of Mark 10, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But Jesus also said that once he suffered and died as God ordained it, he would rise again. You see, the sufferings of Christ were momentary, but eternal glory was awaiting him. The founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. But just like many of us can fall into the same trap of thinking that Peter did, we can all become very man-centered in our thinking about the Christian life. And what Jesus needed to do to them is what Jesus often needs to do to us. He needs to correct, to rebuke our man-centered views of suffering, justice, redemption, and following Jesus. And put our minds back on the things of God. In fact, Jesus was so bold that he looked at Peter and said, Peter, you speak like the voice of Satan. Get behind me. In other words, get out of my way. Brothers and sisters, the one thing you and I never want to do is become a stumbling block for another Christian. You and I never want to get in the way to even tempt another Christian to sin. And friends, when we do, 
we need to own up to that sin and tell that brother and sister, I was wrong to lead you into sin. We'll get more into that in Mark chapter 9. Friends, we should encourage our brothers and sisters. We should give them wise counsel. At times, we should even correct them. But friends, we should never tempt another believer to ever disobey God when it's clearly revealed what a believer should do. Friends, we should never distract another believer from following Jesus, even if following Jesus looks uncomfortable for us. Beloved, we all need to be reminded this morning, if you are going to walk this path with this Jesus, you cannot protect another Christian from all suffering in this life. There is one Savior, and he's not left any vacancy for us. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. Why? I must tell Jesus alone because he is what the person you love so dearly most needs in their suffering. Sometimes we need to tell another brother and sister in Christ, you don't need me to counsel you. You need to be alone with God and call out to him. Friends, suffering is how God makes us more like Jesus. That's God-centered theology. That's big God theology. That's New Testament Christianity. I'm not speaking about someone being abused. I'm not speaking about someone being harshly treated and they need to be protected. But I'm talking about the normal every day. Are you going to stand for Jesus or are you going to compromise? Are you going to live like a hypocrite or are you going to stick out like a sore thumb and represent Jesus? Are you going to kind of crash the party during a soccer practice and help someone think about eternity things or are you just going to keep on with keeping on? Friends, we should not live here in the 21st century as Western Americas thinking that religious freedom is going to protect us the rest of our life. America, wake up. White evangelicals and the Bible Belt South, African American believers in the Bible Belt South, and every other tribe, tongue, and nation in the Bible Belt South, wake up. Suffering is coming. That's not a prophecy, that's just the New Testament. Friends, if you want to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. That's for every Christian. Friends, Satan will pump into our minds all sorts of lies and distractions to get our minds off of God. You want to know how your week's really been? Have someone ask you the question, tell me about your thought life this week. Has it been more on God or on man? Well, Jesus will tell you where that will lead you. If it's on God, you're following Jesus. If it's on man, you might be hearing from Satan more than Jesus. Beloved, it is always better. I want you, this is probably the heaviest statement I'll make, and I'm sure I'm going to have to eat it this week. It is always better to suffer for obedience to God than to suffer the consequences of being disobedient to God. It is always better to suffer the consequences of being obedient to God rather than to suffer the consequences of disobedience to God. Every time. Don't believe the lie of Satan. Remember what Satan said to Jesus in the garden? I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world 
You'll forego suffering. You'll forego pain. You will forego betrayal. I will give it all to you if you just fall down and worship me. Friends, in what ways, even this past week, has your mind been more focused on the things of man rather than on the things of God? Ask the Lord that question in prayer for your own heart this week. And maybe consider reading Colossians chapter 3 as a meditation to do that. What did the cross that Jesus was about to die on have anything to do with what it means to follow him? Which leads to point number three. Jesus calls us to follow him through a life of radical abandonment and humble trust. Look at me starting in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. If you're taking notes, these are kind of the most chewy, applicable aspects of the sermon. Three things Jesus lays out for us here of what is required Not a negotiable, not like a bonus points. But what is required when you're standing at the intersection of life? I'm going to follow Jesus 110%, no looking back, or I'm just going to go the other direction. I'm not going to stand in the middle of the road anymore. Three things, he says. Number one, it's going to require a radical abandonment of self. A radical abandonment abandonment of self. Number two, a humble trust in Christ. A humble trust in Christ. And number three, a reorientation of kingdom priorities. A reorientation of kingdom priorities. Let's do that first one together. A radical abandonment of self. In verse 34, Jesus gives the first step to knowing what following him will require. Look with me closely. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Matthew Henry said the first lesson in Christ's school is self-denial. Jesus makes it clear throughout all the Gospels, you cannot serve two masters. Jesus must be number one, not two, three, and four. Number one in your devotion, in your commitments, in your convictions, and in your affections. Jesus either is the Christ or Jesus is crazy and a kook. He really is who he says he is or he's a liar. If you truly believe that Jesus is the only Savior who can rescue you from your terrible sinful condition, then give up trying to save yourself. That's what condemns people to hell. 
It's not a lack of evidence of the resurrection or the historicity of Jesus or the inspiration of the Bible. What condemns us to death is not a lack of evidence. It's self-sufficiency. I don't need a savior. I'm good without him. It's basically a savior complex in one way or another. Uh, Years ago, a fellow pastor friend of mine realized that unless he prepared his heart before entering his home after work each day, he wouldn't be the husband and father that he was called to be to his family, which I think was like six kids or so. He said he began a practice of standing at the door, praying that God would give him a humble heart so that he could serve his family. He called this daily practice dying at the door. He literally put it in his car, die at the door. Don't you go in there until you die at the door. Friends, as Christians, we're called to die at the door every day. Every day when we wake up, oh God, give me a heart that's not full of me. Give me a heart that's full of you. Make me learn what it means to decrease in front of my children, in front of my spouse, in front of my workers, in front of my bosses, so they see Christ and not me. Friends, if you want to know how to deny yourself, look to Jesus. He left glory, took on human flesh, became a man like us, served sinners, and he humbled himself for us. His humiliation to die for us is our motivation for daily dying to self. His humiliation to die for us is our motivation to daily die to self. As John Stott has said, before we can begin to see the cross as, done, as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Number two, following Jesus will require a humble trust. Jesus said in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The cross was a grotesque Roman crucifixion device. For the Jews, it represented being cursed by God. Friends, this is between you and the Lord and your conscience. I just want to say the obvious. It was not a symbol like many of us today might wear like pretty jewelry around your neck. Rather, it was the death sentence of a rejected slave or hated criminal. As we read throughout church history, some of the earliest followers of Jesus would die on literal crosses, inhumane deaths, all because they loved Jesus. In fact, in AD 64, the emperor Nero launched the first great official persecution of Christians by the Roman government. In that year, the worst fire that Rome had ever known swept through the city and destroyed 10 of its 14 districts. Many people suspected that Nero himself had started the fire so that he could rebuild Rome in a grander style. In order to divert the popular anger away from himself, Nero decided to blame the fire on the Christian community in Rome. The Roman historian Tacitus, who was alive at the time, tells us what happened. First, the authorities arrested everyone who confessed to being a Christian. Mockery was heaped on them in their deaths. They were covered in the skins of wild beasts, torn to death by dogs, 
crucified and set ablaze on fire so that when the nighttime fell, they lit up the city with everything like torches. How do you think those disciples in Caesarea Philippi understood those words? They took exactly what he said literal. We just signed up for our burial. Friends, the call of taking up our cross doesn't mean that all of us will die inhumane deaths. In fact, probably most of us won't. But friends, dying to ourself, carrying our cross, is laid on every Christian. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, death of the old man at his call. Friends, when you're disciplined by the Lord through trials, you're humbly trusting in Jesus. When you're living year after year with unwanted singleness, you're humbly trusting in Jesus. When you're married to a difficult, greedy, ungodly, and otherwise spiritually immature spouse, you're humbly trusting in Jesus. When you're working for a boss you don't like, but working with a God-honoring attitude, you're humbly trusting in Jesus. When you're suffering from a prolonged illness, you're humbly trusting in Jesus. When you're persecuted, mocked, ostracized, and unjustly slandered, for being faithful to God, you're humbly trusting in Jesus. When you're experiencing pain and loss and death, you're humbly trusting in Jesus. Friends, if you are a brother and sister in Christ, it is a great privilege to carry the cross and follow Jesus. We should not complain about the crosses God calls us to bear. Jesus did it. Our Lord did it, and so shouldn't those who follow him. Friends, if you are carrying a heavy cross, ask for prayer. Ask for encouragement. Be raw and honest. Don't get on Google. Talk to a Christian. Talk to your pastors. We're in this thing together. But friends, murmuring and complaining is not a faith. Jesus willfully suffered because he knew it was ordained of God. Friends, suffering is not good in and of itself, but for the faith of a Christian, it produces the greatest good. The third thing, as we conclude, is a reorientation of kingdom priorities. In verse 35 and following, Jesus basically provokes us with two questions. It's really simple. What is more valuable than your soul? And is the gospel and God's kingdom your greatest priority in life? What is more valuable than your soul? It is the gospel and God's kingdom, the greatest priority of your life. Friends, whether it's sex, money, fame, popularity, a life of ease and self-indulgence, legalism, laziness, or simply an unwillingness to be honest about your hypocrisy and your sin, millions and millions and millions of people have heard these words from Jesus and have walked away from him. Many go the broad way that leads to destruction, but only few who walk on the narrow way 
find it. They took, or people make this decision all the time to gain what this world can offer and try to make earth their own little heaven. But they lose heaven with God in the process. They forfeit their souls, Jesus says. Friends, when you reject Jesus and his offer for eternal life, Jesus may give you over to what your sinful heart craves and what your sinful heart deserves. As one theologian has said, sin is man saying to God throughout life, go away and leave me alone. Hell is God's finally saying to man, you may have your wish. It is God's leaving man to himself as man has chosen. You also notice there in Mark 9, verse 1, it's a very unique verse, and it's super difficult to interpret. So I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not 100% confident what it means. Uh, Jesus says that some standing there listening to him will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Uh, There are several plausible interpretations to this. I think contextually, it really is probably leaning more towards the transfiguration of Christ, which is the next section in Mark's gospel. It could also be, uh, be referring to the resurrection of Christ on the day of Pentecost. Uh, some even say it could be referencing to AD 70 when Jerusalem was ransacked by Rome. Uh, either way, the point, what you need to take away from this text is this. Verse 38, Jesus is coming back again. in power and glory and the glory of his Father with the holy angels and in verse, chapter 9, verse 1, what he says about his kingdom, both then, both now, and in the future, will come to pass. Jesus will fulfill every promise he's ever made to his people. Let's conclude. What happens when you take Jesus' words seriously? What happens when a whole church, it becomes normal for cross-carrying Christians to be members of that congregation? What happens when you take Jesus' words to your heart and apply it to your life? Here's one example of a former college basketball player and how she applied this text. When Leah Church got into the University of North Carolina, she cried. Her mom cried. Her sister cried. It was her dream school, and she hadn't even applied for it. For three years after a transfer, Leah played college basketball in the same arena as Michael Jordan decades ago. In an interview, she talks about how for two years it was an amazing experience. She worked hard, acing her classes and improving her game. Her faith as a Christian set her apart, but she was shielded from some of the secular pressures of her team and the university by her Christian coaches, including famed coach Sylvia Hatchell, until the end of her sophomore year, when Hatchell resigned. The environment shifted under a new coach. At the end of her junior year, Church walked away from the team. She recounts her story. The first month or two with the new coaching staff were fine, But as time went on, things became more difficult. I started seeing that there were expectations for me to participate in the party lifestyle and condone things that didn't line up with my biblical beliefs. I chose not to drink, and I'm choosing to save myself for marriage. I said no to a lot of things which made team bonding challenging. There was only one other Christian girl on the team, and she quit when the new coaching staff came on. It was super lonely. 
I felt like sometimes I was singing out for my beliefs, which led to degradation. Midway through junior year, I started thinking, I'm going to have to get out of this. I am miserable. It absolutely killed me when basketball started no longer feeling fun or enjoyable. It was crushing. My mom would tell me, this is a good mom, by the way, light and darkness don't mix. It's not you they dislike, but Christ in you. I knew that, but it didn't make it any easier. When the coach came out with a list of causes the team would be supporting, I knew I wasn't going to be able to compromise and go against my biblical principles. I decided, notice her words, in light of eternity, that basketball wasn't worth it. After reading scripture and talking with her parents, she concluded that if God is sovereign, he would take care of her, even if playing basketball was removed from her life. She goes on to say in the interview this closing statement. Life's not supposed to be easy for Christians. For me, it helped me to think about eternity. And through this, I've had the opportunity to share my faith at churches and with teams. I've been able to use this to encourage others to stand firm because in the end, that's what matters. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you this morning that for those of us who belong to Jesus Christ, you have revealed to us by giving light in our minds to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. And yet, Lord, we also pray for daily grace and help and strength and courage and boldness and wisdom and discernment to carry our cross, no matter the cost. Lord, we need one another to do that faithfully. Lord, we are all prone to wander. We are all prone to try to correct Jesus or to correct you, saying that this can't be your will. This can't be what you've ordained for me. And yet, Lord, we are reminded that following Christ in this life will involve suffering of many kinds. Lord, teach us as members of this body to take up our crosses daily and to follow Jesus faithfully. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.